Thanks for joining us again at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, back again with Dr. Rupina Purewal, pediatric infectious diseases physician from Saskatoon. In this episode, we invite Dr. Zane Shagla, associate professor at McMaster University, co-medical director of infection control at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and a consultant in infection control at Woodstock General Hospital, to discuss the upcoming respiratory season and the RSV vaccine. Dr. Pierwall. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of our podcast, The Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we have a very special guest, and many of you may actually know him. It's Dr. Zane Chegla, who will be speaking about the respiratory season with us today and a lot of new information on RSV. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Chegla. Dr. Chegla is an associate professor at McMaster University and an infectious diseases consultant. He is the medical director of infection control, head of infectious diseases service, and the interim senior medical director of clinical operations at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. He's a member of the Institute for Infectious Diseases Research at McMaster University and a council member of AMI Canada. Dr. Chegla holds a BSc and MD from Queen's University, an internal medicine residency from Western University, an infectious diseases fellowship at McMaster University, and a master's of science in infectious diseases, and a diploma in tropical medicine from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So it's fantastic with all those credentials. I'm super excited to speak with you today, Dr. Chegla, for a really important topic. Um, We're kind of entering the respiratory season that we have been expecting for a few months now. And I think all of us experts have been talking about this and a bit dreaded uh, respiratory season. So, but we also have a lot of new information for this respiratory season. So that's kind of what we're going to focus on today. Why don't we start a little bit about what is this season looking like? What population is most affected? And really for our listeners who, you know, are general practitioners, nurses, nurse practitioners have family members that are probably going to ask them a dozen questions. And so why don't we give our listeners a bit of an overview of what we might be dealing with this respiratory season? Yeah, absolutely. And, and first off, thanks for having me. I hope we can go by first names here for, for the yeah, sake of it for because sure. I, it's a whole <laughs> lot more fun. So, you know, I, I, no one wants respiratory season to come. I think that's, you know, if we yeah. could get rid of it, we would get rid of it. But at the same time, especially in a, a climate with four seasons. So, you know, I, I wish we didn't have respiratory season, but we did. And and it's eventual and it's eventuality of every year that this is a tough season. It's a yeah. tough season for individuals. Uh, for families, for people who have vulnerable people in their house, for people with kids. It's a tough for, you know, society and workplaces, lots of absenteeism. And it's tough for healthcare. And that, you know, in yeah. the context that there are just a lot of patients, not only with respiratory disease itself, but flare ups of their underlying disease states, often from respiratory infections. And so, you know, it's even pre-pandemic, it was a problem. And it was always a time when healthcare workers knew that things would be stretched. And come 2023, 2024, we've added another virus to the mix. Even in the best of seasons, it wasn't a great time. And now we've added another virus that's that's here as a contributor to all of this. So, 
you know, I think we uh, will see obviously a respiratory season. Last year, we probably had one of our worst respiratory seasons on record. This year, there's a lot of speculation about what's exactly going to happen, but you know, recognizing even in the best case scenario where we come in with a regular influenza season, a regular RSV season, and, and add COVID-19 in the mix, it's still going to be pretty tight, and it's still going to be pretty hard for some healthcare systems to compensate for it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, kind of when we talk about this new virus, RSV, and a population that we don't normally, you know, prior, I would say pre-pandemic, but it probably is just prior to the last few years in general, you know, we would see RSV in pediatric populations uh, quite frequently. And that was my kind of area uh, for months and months, um, you know, this fall to spring. But not only that, like the patterns have changed in our pediatric populations too, for some of these viruses where we're seeing less of the seasonal and this kind of constant viral activity um, which we've been picking up with a lot of our surveillance programs. So, so you mentioned, I mean, obviously there's vulnerable populations. So I think age groups, like I know for RSV, classically, it's at less than six months old. That's really getting affected to getting into hospitals. And then in, I think adults, that would be the elderly population uh, more yeah. so. So RSV in adults. So it's interesting, you know, I think last year was a, the season where everyone learned about RSV, right? Everyone uh, over the last five years is getting infectious diseases and virology lessons left and right. And RSV <laughs> became chapter two yeah. after COVID-19. Um, yeah. And and it was the pediatric system, obviously, that, that introduced it. You know, RSV yeah. has been an issue in adults for a long time. It, okay. You know, it, it's interesting because I think healthcare providers see it, you know, I certainly as an internist and as a resident, as an ID physician, you see it often enough. But I think there's just been a lot of apathy towards it in the adult population, recognizing it's, you know, one of the respiratory viruses that makes people sick. We had zero tools to offer for it. It strikes down the same individuals that have issues with other respiratory viruses. You know, and there was a lot of focus on influenza because it was yeah. the one that had solutions in terms of vaccine campaigns, right. potentially therapeutics and other pieces. You know, if you look at RSV across the sector, you know, in many different studies, the impacts are actually pretty similar in the adult population to influenza. So, you know, in, in the adult sector, for example, for long-term care costs, RSV in, in the U.S., there's Medicare data suggesting it's actually pretty similar to influenza in terms of hospital care and, and specific care to long-term care patients. There's data from Alberta, actually, in terms of healthcare costs for adults uh, mm -hmm. with RSV, and it's it's sizable. Like a, an RSV hospitalization costs about $12,000 to the system. It's about $40,000 at, at a year, which is actually pretty similar to, to influenza. Total budgets are actually not that far off in that sense. And if you right. look at patients, even what happens to them in hospital when they get RSV and influenza, you know, the rates of things like bacterial pneumonia, cardiac complications, death are actually pretty similar. So, you know, I think it it's one of these diseases that that did affect adults. I think we didn't talk about it much because there wasn't really much we could offer. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, leveraging on 
a the um, the global education that was given last year around RSV and and the impacts, especially when it raced back into a population after being naive to it for a few years, and b the fact that we have actual now now vaccines for RSV, right. which is a huge medical advance. You know, it's something that really should be brought to the forefront to talk about as a as a potential mitigatable vaccine mitigatable disease in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think you made a very important point here is that usually we don't talk about a lot of these things because we don't have solutions. Um, but fortunately, entering into a respiratory season where we're anticipating a lot of RSV, a lot of influenza, a lot of COVID, you know, all over respiratory viruses in general, I think this year, you know, seeing that we do have some new updates for people to counsel, not just to say lift your sleeves and let's get influenza and COVID vaccines, but for some of our populations, we actually have a new RSV vaccine. And so why don't we discuss a little bit, because I know there's going to be a lot of questions for family doctors and um, other upfront general practitioners um, and healthcare professionals where they're, they're probably going to get questions around indications, contraindications. So why don't we dive into a little bit about the RSV vaccine and really when was it approved and all of the wealth of information that you can give us today? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the RSV vaccine story is a huge success over the last few years. And, Definitely. you know, we, we talked about, I think, about the burden of RSV in adults being not trivial. And so the big question is, why don't we have, why didn't we have an RSV vaccine till now? We've had an influenza vaccine. We saw in the pandemic, we could develop a COVID-19 vaccine very quickly. Why isn't there an RSV vaccine? And the answer was, there was, there were trial targets of RSV vaccines back in the 60s and 70s. The issue is, you know, the epitopes and the antigen were not well developed. And RSV has a a fusion protein, which is kind of what Mm -hmm. binds the virus, similar to the spike protein, what binds the virus to the target cells within the respiratory tract. That fusion protein was thought to be very well conserved between both RSV and B, the two subtypes. So a really good immunogenic target. The issue was is that when RSV is in its natural state, the fusion protein goes into a post-fusion conformation. So this, this, you know, more oblong looking protein which helps with its function, but it is not very immunogenic. And then the binding sites for neutralizing antibodies are actually quite covered up. This actually creates two problems. One is is that you don't get a good vaccine response, but secondly, you, you may develop antibodies which are not sterilizing, don't have effects on the virus, and then when exposed to the virus, you're already primed to make that immune response with those antibodies. And in fact, you know, some of those early vaccine trials not only showed that these vaccines weren't effective using mm-hmm. the post-fusion protein and lysed viral components, but they actually may have been deleterious in the context of, of increasing susceptibility to severe COVID, uh, severe RSV in that context. And so they were largely abandoned and they were, there was a lot of work done over the last few decades to kind of figure out, okay, where is the immune target? What can we find that's stable? And how does that relate to, you know, eventual development of a vaccine? The last 10, 15 years, there's been this recognition that the pre-fusion state, so before the the fusion protein binds to the cell is Mm -hmm. not the stable state for the protein, but actually does open up some very potent neutralizing antibody binding sites. So that was piece number one to the puzzle. 
And then piece number two is really work over the last few years is how to actually keep the protein in that stable conformation. So keep it in that pre-fusion state. And once that was really developed, we saw three companies, in fact, multiple companies, develop RSV vaccines based on that construct, two of them using a protein-based method with an adjuvant and one using an mRNA method, but really mm-hmm. using that pre-fusion protein and that immune response for the pre-fusion protein to then develop vaccines. And so GSK developed the Orexv vaccine, which is the one approved in Canada. Pfizer developed a vaccine, not approved in Canada yet, but going through Health Canada approval. And Moderna developed a vaccine, again, going through Health Canada approval currently. So these work essentially with that pre-fusion protein and mm-hmm. an adjuvant. Uh, so an adjuvant you know, is a molecule that's used to really trigger potent immune responses. They're part of most protein-based vaccines. And the adjuvant is actually pretty similar to one that we have on the market. It's actually the same as one that's in the Shingrix vaccine. Uh, okay. So this ASO1 adjuvant, which, which is for the shingles vaccine, a very, very potent vaccine. It gives very, very good immune responses. And so you know, using that technology in this, in this vaccine. They took the, and I'll talk about the GSK vaccine mainly because it's the one that's approved on the Canadian market. So they took about 12,500 individuals. They gave them this vaccine versus placebo, and they looked at lower respiratory tract disease. They did this trial actually during the pandemic, which is remarkable considering there wasn't a lot of respiratory (laughs) virus spread, but they saw about an 80% reduction in lower respiratory tract disease with RSV, about a 90% reduction in severe lower respiratory tract disease, and even about a 70% reduction in acute respiratory symptoms. So just like a sore throat, minor symptoms, but having RSV with minor symptoms. So really big benefits. This was a population that was over 60 uh, and it was a population where about 30, 40% of them had comorbid diseases like cardiac disease, lung disease, diabetes, obesity, and a few of them that were actually not frail, but what we'd consider pretty frail. So people that had functional issues and, and may have been, you know, even higher risk for severe disease in that sense. So really, really good data. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really what led to the approval of this vaccine and now the availability of this vaccine actually across the country for populations over the age of 60. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, those, those efficacy rates are very high and definitely the population, you know, it's always the strength of a study when the population that's tested is that high risk population. So um, cause that's what we're talking about with those comorbidities and the respiratory season. Cause those are the patients that we would see that would enter the hospital and have very severe morbidity and mortality from RSV. So yeah, Zane, in terms of all of this research is out there, is it a one dose? Is it two doses? So what's kind of the administration requirements and can this be given at a physician's office? Yeah. So for the first question, it's a really good question. And, and you know, when we think about COVID-19 vaccines, you know, we're, we weren't sure about the dosing, the virus continues to evolve. Right. And the other part of COVID-19 vaccines is a lot of people that got COVID-19 vaccines have never seen COVID-19 before, right? So this is really priming the initial immune response. Influenza vaccines, they often have to be tweaked to deal with the antigenic drift. So kind of different subtypes of influenza circulating globally and try to match appropriately. RSV vaccine is a little bit different. So number mm-hmm. one, this is an infection, especially in the 60-year-old population, which people have probably seen five yeah. to 10 times during their lifetime. They have some pre-existing immunity. It's clearly not enough to keep them out of hospital and keep them from getting sick, right. but there is some pre-existing immunity. And number two is a virus that is relatively antigenically stable. So not 
not seeing that much of the drift in that sense. There's RSPA and B, and the GSK trial showed that you know similar similar effects in both, but relatively you're not seeing the viral evolution we see with influenza and COVID-19. So but all of the trials have incorporated not only the initial, you know, one shot versus no shot, one year mm-hmm. clinical data, but are actually ongoing looking at what year two looks like for these people, what year three looks like for these people. And in the GSK trial, they actually gave a subset of people who got the shot in year one, a shot in year two versus not getting a shot in year two. So really now we have a little bit of year two data an interim data analysis that Hmm. looks at two shots versus one shot versus zero shots in year two of the, the, um, the respiratory season. And the bottom line is efficacy is still pretty preserved. It's about 77, 78% for medically attended lower respiratory tract infection. And two shots right now looks as good as one shot. So that 78% number is similar, essentially not did not different between two shots and one shot. So for Mm -hmm. the moment, this is vaccine is currently only recommended as a single dose because we do now have two seasons data suggesting that a single dose has the effects for two seasons that multiple doses would have as well. And so that's really a good good piece that we may yeah. have a vaccine that, you know, similar to to others where it's more of a staggered strategy of immunization, not a yearly strategy. And so, you know, when people go and roll up their sleeves, they can, you know, get some assurance that the protection isn't just going to be for every, you know, every season I need to update it, but maybe actually for uh, a decent amount of time afterwards. The second part to your question was who can administer it? Mm -hmm. So this is a new vaccine. And so that creates a little bit of logistical challenges across the board. It isn't very different than, say, shingles vaccine or hepatitis B vaccine in the context of what it's constituted with. So in certain provinces, like uh, the Western provinces, pharmacists have the ability to administer either with or without a physician's order, depending on the province and the scope of yeah. practice. In places like Ontario, uh, it's really just physician discretion right now, but there is a lot of work ongoing to make sure that that's a bit more open and matches, because again, I presume a pharmacist in British Columbia is pretty similar to a pharmacist in Ontario in terms of yes. their ability to deal with a vaccine. And uh, and so there is a lot of work that's being done to really try to make sure that it's more accessible to people, recognizing the challenges in primary care. This is still a vaccine outside of one province that's publicly funded it for long-term care in Ontario. This is still a vaccine that's also privately paid because there's not really a NACI recommendation for it yet, okay. um, which is often a trigger to then look at cost effectiveness and public right. versus private payers. But uh, so, so you know, Ontario has invested in long-term care facilities, recognizing that there's probably significant benefit there. Mm-hmm. But uh, outside of that, it's privately funded. It may be funded through private insurance plans. Uh, but that also creates a logistical challenge because now you actually have to buy the product and administer it. So again, right. hopefully more advocacy around getting it in pharmacies and, and more yeah. spots that can do it appropriately that put less barriers at that patient level. And generally, do we know if like, let's say patients are asking about costs, do we know roughly? An so idea? The, maybe it's a little bit different. Yeah. The manufacturer cost is 230 Canadian. In the US, it's $280 American. So there is a discount being north of the border. Uh, <laughs> that is not necessarily the cost to patient. There's obviously co- there's cost the pharmacy has to take for bringing it in, injection yes. costs, et cetera. But that's yeah. the baseline cost, plus probably a little bit on the pharmacy end or the provider end in that standpoint. And then just like any new rollout for vaccines, I know there's always questions in regards to safety. So 
what, you know, we talked about the efficacy, we talked about the administration of this vaccine in those similar trials, I would assume, especially at the second year for sure, but initially as well, uh, safety was looked at. So what can we, what can we tell our, some of our listeners about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the GSK vaccine, the Rexy vaccine, the, you know, it has a Shingrix adjuvant. For those who have taken Shingrix or administered Shingrix, gives people a sore arm and, and a lot of swelling. And so that was seen in the clinical trials. A lot of, you know, compared to placebo, swelling, fever, malaise, nausea, injection site redness, you know, those were higher in the group that got the RSV vaccine versus the group that yeah. got placebo. That's not necessarily a harm, but it's just a recognizable side effect of that adjuvant being very, very immunogenic, unfortunately leaves people with a bit of immunogenic side effects. Most of these SAEs were dealt with in 40 to 72 hours. Uh, Sorry, these AEs, sorry, were dealt with in 40 to 72 hours. In terms of SAEs, serious adverse events in the the registration clinical trial, there was none Mm -hmm. higher than placebo. On the product monograph, there are two descriptions of Guillain-Barre-like cases associated with the vaccine. One was associated with co-administration with the influenza vaccine. So it's not clear exactly what the source was. And there's one that probably is temporarily related to the, the vaccine in a, in a separate clinical trial. It wasn't actually in this clinical trial. So, you know, there is that indication. And, and certainly part of post-marketing surveillance is looking for it. But at the same time, you know, outside of that, and, and you know, these Guillain-Barre events are also difficult to adjudicate just because they're spontaneous events uh, and a baseline risk in the population and a risk associated with respiratory tract infections too. We have actually data around, for example, natural influenza and, and Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is about mm-hmm. one in a hundred thousand um, that, you know, risk and benefit discussion in that context. And hopefully as again, more global administration happens, we get more global data if this is a real trend and what the prevalence is, but really, you know, outside of that issue, there really isn't major SAEs that were noted. And, and again, you know, other than the side sore arm, which, you know, for some people could be considered yeah. a, you know, <laughs> feels lousy, but at least means it's working in that sense. Right. Yeah. Right. We got the right job. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I know in pediatrics, we always talk about co-administration of vaccines because our vaccine schedules are so detailed intricate. There's multiple vaccines that are given. So in this adult population over 60, I know that a lot of people are now getting that text message where, you know, influenza vaccines are rolling out. We know that there is a new COVID vaccine with the covering the Omicron variant that was released by Moderna. So in terms of with RSV and in the study, like you mentioned that some of the co-administration with RSV and influenza led to, let's say, an incident like Yambere. Um, so did they discuss co-administration of all the other vaccines that maybe even shingles, I guess, because um, a lot of that population would also be exposed to such a vaccine? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, the the trial that had the single case of, with co-administration, there was actually a trial that looked at co-administration with both uh, high-dose quadrivalent vaccine for influenza and adjuvanted influenza vaccine. At least outside of H3N2 titers with, I believe, the adjuvanted vaccine, there was non-inferiority in terms of individuals who got influenza alone versus influenza plus the RSV vaccine. So, and safety-wise, there was no concerns other than the single case. And even then, it was hard to say where it was adjudicated. 
So at least we have some co-administration data. Even that that lower level of H3N2 antibodies is not clear what that clinically is. Still developed antibodies that were slightly lower than pre-specified, you know, margin. But does that mean there's less protection or does that mean the protection is the same? If you were exposed, it's not really clear. The ACIP in the US, which is probably the guideline organization we rely on, just kind of said, you know, consider co-administration if it's easier for the patient, the risks and benefits, losing patients, et cetera. And consider, you know, if if there's factors that may want people to space things out, you know, they're a bit more uh, predisposed to side effects, they're worried about side effects, right. um, then space them out. And if you have good patient follow-up, then then you, that's not an unreasonable issue. And obviously consider where you are in the, the respiratory season. If we're talking about this, doing this in May, probably fine to space things out. If RSV right. is surging, then you, know, you might want to have some second thoughts about spacing things out if you're going to lose the patient in that couple of weeks. Right. Yeah, the you know the other vaccines like herpes zoster, pneumococcal, COVID nineteen vaccines. There's no data, and and there wasn't co administration data in clinical trials. I would say you know there are some organizations, the Ontario Advisory Council on Immunization, for example, that said you know maybe for the first little while, give a couple of weeks between vaccines, not for any safety issue, but just for the fact that you could actually attribute. If there is an adverse event, where what vaccine it's associated with, but at the same time that the ACIP had had really come out with a recommendation to say, think about your patient, their demographics, their risks, you know, their benefits of getting co-administration versus non-benefits of getting co-administration, and and make a discussion. There's not a, a yes or no. You can certainly co-administer if you want. But really consider that patient. The only other thing I would say is if you're going to use adjuvanted vaccines like the adjuvanted influenza vaccine or the adjuvanted herpes zoster vaccine, give it in separate arms to that patient so that you don't right. adjuvant, you know, have a huge amount of adjuvant in one side. Not dangerous, but they're going to have a lot of pain on that side if you keep pushing it in that sense. Yeah. And then I guess seeing we should probably let our listeners know that with RSC, this vaccine is inactivated. Um, and so that would be important. I know that's always a question yeah. when vaccines roll out. And so like influenza, obviously we have active and inactive formulations, but specifically, unless I'm uh, wrong about yeah. that. So this, um, is, this is a protein-based vaccine. And so no, no, for immunocompromised populations and their families, there's no issues with potential spread or, or again, being immunocompromised. And we do know RSV is a big issue in immunocompromised patients. It is actually yeah. a population of concern. So especially if they're over 60, that is a population to really, really consider vaccination. We have good data from herpes zoster that this adjuvant really does a good job at triggering immune responses, even in bone marrow transplant individuals. There is, there's really, you know, there's no contraindication in an immunocompromised person. And in fact, probably mm-hmm. a good, good amount of benefit in that context. I think it's also fantastic that it's a one shot, right? So, I mean, probably the benefits of being conjugated and also that, you know, if we get it early on in the season, then, you know, it will last you the season and who knows what the respiratory season, how long the respiratory season will be, because I know in pediatrics, for instance, we saw this, you know, early fall late spring was our RSV season. And then now it's just turning into kind of that less seasonal pattern. So, so I think it's, it's reassuring to people as well that, you know, this isn't something that's only going to last you four or five months, but um, the hope is that lasts you the entire season and, and longer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in those discussions around cost, like we know cost is an issue. People have 
cost containment issues and, and the need to afford medications. You know, think about it as amortizing it over at least two years, maybe even longer. And so, you know, this is not just a cost upfront today. It's probably a cost for two years or three years, depending on the data that we see coming out. You know, there may be, you know, that, that frame of mind that this is more of a long-term intervention than a short-term intervention. I know there's a lot of discussion around RSV in general, even in the pediatric population. So like we talked about the disease burden. So in the past, we've really, I mean, even now we don't have like an RSV specific vaccine in pediatric patients. Um, There is some discussions around rollouts in pregnant women and other high risk populations. Like we've already fortunate to see that at least one came out in elderly population with comorbidities. But just so our listeners know, like there isn't a pediatric formulation of this yet. Um, We, they will be hearing a little bit more about some of the monoclonal antibodies. Historically, we've had pelivizumab on the market for a long, long time, as long as I can remember practicing and learning about it. Um, And so I think there will be some newer data coming out from PHAC for sure in a few short months here in terms of uh, nirsevimab, which I think a lot of our listeners probably tuned into some of the information and probably will be hearing from their RSV programs locally. It is obviously jurisdiction, interjurisdictional differences. We know that with all vaccines and healthcare in general, any, um, you know, once like Health Canada definitely has approved this, and so with the rollout of nirsevimab, we don't know exactly which populations to target. I know the U.S. has definitely given us more information in terms of a wide group of patients, but uh, just for our listeners to be aware that some of that data isn't as particular, you know, rolled out yet for Canada, but should be on the way. But just to discuss a little bit about what we're seeing with RSV, so obviously through some of our impact surveillance data, Similarly to what other groups have seen um, in other populations, like you mentioned in the adult population as well, is that we didn't actually have a season for RSV back in 2020 to 2021, and which was a bit strange for us in, in pediatrics because prior to that and then after that, we've seen peak numbers of RSV and really affects kind of the young comorbidities, definitely. So if anybody has chronic or congenital heart conditions, chronic lung disease, um, and that's kind of our, our same population. Now, we haven't seen much of a difference in terms of the actual morbidity that's changed. So that's been very similar, but we have seen a rise in our hospitalizations. And so that's gone up significantly um, and still affecting less than six months old primarily. And so I think that's still, whenever we talk about extremes of age, I think that's very common in medicine, right? So extremes of age, less than six months, I mean, even probably up to a year, we worry about that with RSV. And then 60 and older is kind of what we're talking about in the elderly population. So I think some of these things are towards preventative, right? That's what our actions are towards. And that's what nirsevimab and even pelvizumab in the past. So I think some of the differences, I won't go into all the details of that today for time's sake, and but definitely once PHAC gives us some more information, I think we'll uh, probably do another episode on nirsevimab because I think it's worthy of its own episode for sure. Yeah, um, and it, it's a difficult file, right? Because definitely, you know, vaccinations are, are kind of pretty straightforward in terms of, you know, you give it, that's it. 
there's a cost associated, there's a burden associated. Often the demand drives the vaccination in terms of the yeah. disease state. This is a trickier file, right? Because there's a cost effectiveness component in terms of the number of hospitalizations averted. Um, right. You know, the, there's lots of ways that we measure cost effectiveness in terms of quality adjusted life yeah. years and that type of thing. And so, you know, this is where some of these discussions are happening. This is where, you know, the one decision could be made in the US, one decision could be made in Canada that exactly. are polar opposites. And, uh, and again, it's not as simple as saying yes or no, like the drug's approved. It's just how do we roll this out effectively to the most individuals that are at risk and get the biggest value for, for it in that sense, right? Yeah. And just like you mentioned, Zane, like we're entering into programs that are already established, right? So we already have these RSV programs and multiple centers. And so kind of figuring out the logistics of the change as well. And I think it rolled out in a time where RSV is just around the corner too. So, um, but definitely new information, a lot of updates. And so all of this along with, you know, other preventative measures that we've seen uh, being implemented in the last few years, I think, uh, I think we're on the right track. That's probably the most fortunate uh, take back from this, even though it's a dreaded respiratory season, we have more options. Um, yeah, and so, so with this upcoming uh, respiratory season, what's our future? Like, do we think that we're seeing an uptick in general? Or are we already seeing this uptick? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID-19 obviously is is one that it's hard to predict, right? If you could tell what yeah. could happen, you'd probably make a lot of money and, and be able to, <laughs> to, uh, to go through it. But at the same time, like we do see COVID transmission, it is translating into some degree of hospitalizations, and unfortunately, it's yeah. translating into nosocomial activity. But you know, in the same context, there has been a, a rapid, rapid decline in severe complications with COVID-19, and that's really right. due to COVID-19 and therapeutics. Uh, influenza, you know, is probably, as we saw in some of the other uh, southern jurisdictions, is probably going to have more of a typical seasonal pattern, mm-hmm. maybe a bit of a higher peak. It's not clear. It's a little bit more reassuring from last year. It doesn't seem to have taken off just yet. It's kind of in the beginning, so it's probably a little bit more um, hopefully predictable. RSV, again, I think we're starting to see the uptick mm-hmm. a little bit earlier. Not as bad, again, as last season's uptick, but but starting. Yeah. All the other respiratory viruses obviously come around to adenovirus, you know, rhinovirus, although that's typically earlier in the year, parainfluenza, right. you know, and human adenovirus in the spring, all that. I think, you know, the one thing that is probably new-ish and, and one of the, you know, directions on, on improving vaccinations mm-hmm. is also a significant recognition of the chronic disease states that get exacerbated by underlying viral diseases, right? And, yeah. you know, I'll give one example of coronary artery disease or cardiovascular disease. It's always been known. I mean, we see it in the winter, right? That heart attacks go up. Um, right. And people often complain of a viral illness before their M- MI. These are pure MIs, chest pain MIs, not not I have a cough and I have no troponin bump. This is, you know, people who have plaque disruption and, and need an intervention. And, you know, I, there's been a lot of data across the country. And Jeff Kwong's group here in Ontario has really studied this quite a bit and saw, you know, for example, the rate of uh, incident MI after influenza is six times mm-hmm. higher in the seven days post-influenza diagnosis than it is before having influenza or even seven days after having influenza. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's an important concept. We actually have our first randomized clinical trial of influenza vaccine 
in cardiac prevention. And it's a pretty landmark trial. It's actually mm-hmm. one that isn't discussed much, but you know, this was by Mark Loeb, who's a colleague of mine here. Mm-hmm. Um, they went to some low-income countries where influenza vaccine was not standard of care. Uh, so, so it was really kind of a, an altruistic trial to get some people influenza vaccine. They gave influenza vaccine versus placebo to individuals who had cardiac risk. They looked in the influenza season and they saw about a 19% relative risk reduction in mm. incident fatal or non-fatal myocardial infarction or stroke as a composite outcome in individuals who got an influenza vaccine versus not. This isn't, did they get influenza? Mm. This isn't, did they get you know, pneumonia? Did they end up hospitalized? It's literally, did they have a heart attack or a stroke? And they saw a decline. So that's an important intervention, right? For those of you, for those, you know, primary care specialists who deal with high-risk cardiac patients, you know, we have agonizing discussions about antiplatelet agents, anticoagulation, statin, glycemic control, you know, hypertension control. We rarely have discussions of, hey, are you up to date with your immunizations? Yeah. But I think that paradigm is shifted to say, like, actually, I need to talk to you if you're up to date on your immunizations, because that's just important as the antiplatelet discussion we need to have, or right. the statin discussion or the hypertension discussion we need to have. So, so really, you know, groundbreaking, but, you know, a concept that I think has been going on for a while, but recognizing yeah. again, that there is a probably chronic disease burden from viral infections that that needs, you know, much more intervention from from those in that sense. So really emphasizing kind of preventative measures alongside other preventative, like risk-modifying disease methods that they're using. So I think for some of our cardiologists listening out there, I think that's good to kind of implement into our day-to-day counseling, because I think it's important to kind of have that whole framework, right? So we have to cover all aspects and, and presenting some of this data to your patients. I think that's really important because I think a lot of information, you know, there's a lot of information out there, but really having some of that evidence-based and, and trial information, I think is very helpful for patients to understand, you know, it's not just that we're preventing you from getting a common cold, that there's actually yeah, other so. benefits. And it's, it's a group discussion, right? So all healthcare yeah. providers need to be involved with immunization. It's not just primary care. It's not just pharmacy. No. It's not just infectious diseases. It's everyone has a role to play is, you know, again, a cardiologist has just as much skin in the game to make sure that person's immunized as, as you know, the, the primary care physician. Yeah. And I think just making it routine, and I know there's a lot of discussion around, there's obviously vaccine hesitancy, but there's also vaccine fatigue. Right. So we we are seeing people from the last like few years. We just all we talk about is vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. And I can imagine, you know, for patients and for their families and for people who are trying to raise their families, it's it's challenging. Right. There's always something new. There's always something that we're talking about. But I think this is just the spread of information is very different nowadays than it was before. And so I think just counseling your patients is really important, reminding them that like this isn't, you know, we're not going to talk about this all the time, not in July and August, but right now as we're having peak respiratory season, that's why you're hearing more about this. And so really taking on those preventive measures. That's fantastic, Zane. We're, I'm really excited about this RSV vaccine because I want to see um, some of the post-marketing surveillance. I think it'll be interesting to see uh, some of the data through there. And and so are there, so what's the future is currently, are there, you know, enrollments for like trials that uh, physicians should be thinking about? 
Is there a future combined vaccines that are coming out that maybe we can prep our our patients for anything yeah, absolutely. on your end? So, so definitely the combined vaccine is, is a big issue. And, and certainly there's a lot of work being done, COVID-19, RSV and influenza, you know, bundling them, not only having them separate, but bundling them up, recognizing it's a yeah. challenge. The data cuts from year two and year three of these studies are also going to start coming out. So we can probably get a bit more sense of right. what long-term efficacy of these vaccines are. There is a lot of work being done. And, and again, we'll probably see real world implementation data. And, yeah. you know, it's similar to the journey of the herpes zoster vaccine. We start seeing what happens in real world populations, right? So long-term mm-hmm. care populations, majorly immunocompromised populations. I think the data will be good, but, you know, I think, again, it, it gives more push for A, you know, public funding models, but B, really the benefits of, of these vaccines. Yeah, so a lot to look forward to. Um, but let's all be safe this respiratory season. So I think we have some preventative options. You know, the vaccines have started to roll out. So reach out to your local pharmacists and uh, pharmacies and physicians if you need more information. Um, And so I think really important is along with prevention, like we do this in pediatrics all the time. I counsel everybody about hand washing and, you know, if you're sick, stay home, masking, that type of thing. So we know that all of these preventative measures along with vaccines, right, are effective. And so is there any kind of last few words you want our listeners to know about or? Yeah, yeah, no, I just look, we live in a, it's a terrible time that we have to deal with respiratory season. But think about it, this, you know, this year is very different than 2018. We have multiple vaccines, we have therapeutics, we have lots of different ways to make sure people are safer during respiratory season. You know, it's it's time, you know, I think providers are really willing to have those discussions with patients. And so, yeah, you know, have that discussion with your provider because again, it's important. And again, it's 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 really the scientific progress, which has been great. Exactly. And I think we're very fortunate that um, all of this is rolling out at a very good speed. So definitely timely for the respiratory season as well. That's fantastic. So before we go, I just want to let everybody know that this uh, podcast is only for informational purposes and not to endorse a product or a vaccine product or any information pleasure to have you on our podcast today and, you know, talk about such a pressing issue that's, you know, just around the corner for most of us. Um, And so I think with all of this advice and, and information that you've given us today, I think we're setting ourselves up for a successful, although dreaded uh, respiratory season. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Zane. Thank you, Dr. Purewell and Dr. Shagla. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com and follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at CA Breakpoint. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint. <laughs>